Welcome to the Living Jewishly Podcast. I'm Dr. Elliot Malaman. I'm Rabbi Yossi Saperman. And I'm Rabbi Bluth. We talk about Judaism, and we talk about living, and we talk about everything in between. And what it means to be Jewish and human in today's world. Judaism is not nearly as boring as I thought it was. We're not selling you on Judaism. We're not selling you on living. We're just trying to get you inside of our brains, the way we think about stuff. And the way we feel about stuff. And we'll try to be as real as possible. By getting you into our Jewish brain, you'll argue a lot, you'll disagree, you'll love, you'll eat, you'll have a really good time, you'll learn a lot of things, and you know what? You might actually find that all those 3,000 years have been worth it. And maybe we'll even come out being better people for it. Human beings, writes the Oxford philosopher Neil Levy, are a punitive species. Wrongdoers and wrongdoing arouses strong emotions in us, whether it is done to us or to others. The anger and resentment that ensues has led to the search for the right methods and the right proportions in dispensing justice, whether it is social ostracism, incarceration, monetary penalties, or finally, capital punishment. But it's hard to get it right. Between the position of some people that were far too vindictive for things that should not even be the subject of discipline in the first place. Drug offenses come to mind. And those that feel quite the opposite, that too many bad actors are just, quote, getting away with it, unquote. Our culture remains deeply divided about the policies that guide punishment on a communal and state level. I'm Elia Malamed, and in today's episode of What Would You Do?, my monthly podcast on ethics in the modern world, we examine the deeply rooted human desire for punishment. Is it inevitable that the lines between justice and vengeance blur and overlap? How do we determine appropriate punishment? And should the state be involved less or more in dispensing the ever-elusive idea of justice? Unpacking these kinds of questions is a daily task for Professor Adam Kolber of the Brooklyn School of Law. Professor Kolber writes and teaches in the areas of health law, bioethics, criminal law, and neurolaw. He has worked as a practicing lawyer and also clerked for a U.S. Court of Appeals judge. I began our discussion by asking him what he sees as the goals of punishment. Why do we punish? And also what, in his view, is the most effective moral basis for punishing? Adam, in your work, you assert that for every interesting moral question, we should have at least some doubt that we know the right answer, that for retributivists, which are people who believe in retribution for alleged wrongdoing, for them to inflict punishment, they must believe not only that a defendant is guilty, but that all other prerequisites for deserved punishment are satisfied as well. They must believe offenders have free will, even though philosophers have debated the topic for centuries. They must believe offenders can be punished proportionally, even though no one has convincingly determined how to assess proportionality, and they must believe it appropriate to make offenders suffer in response to the suffering they caused, even though some find this view barbaric. So, Adam, I have two questions here. The first is, what do you see as the goals of punishment? Like, why do we punish? And number two, what do you see as the most effective moral basis for punishing? There are two main schools of thought. One view, called the retributivist view, is that we punish people because they deserve it, and they deserve it because of past wrongdoing. This is a very strong urge that a lot of people have. You've been wronged. A friend of yours has been wronged. You feel like the other person deserves something bad in response. So that's the retributivist view. 
The other main school of thought is the consequentialist view. The consequentialist believes that we punish people in order to achieve good ends. The most commonly cited good ends from punishment are things like deterring crime, incapacitating dangerous people, and rehabilitating people so they don't offend again in the future. My own view leads towards the second one. It leads toward the consequentialist view that if we're going to harm somebody because they've done something wrong, we should do it because we expect good things, better things to come from it. And so I think that a lot of people hold kind of mixed views that have aspects of retributivism and aspects of consequentialism. My own inclination is that the more effective moral basis is the consequentialist view. So let me just ask you something in response to that. There is obviously an impulse in people to get, and here the words get murky, right? Get justice or get vengeance, and sometimes they they overlap. Do you think there's any basis in a society to allow people to carry out that emotion into action? Or do you think that's the kind of thing that we should sort of try and tamp down, really, and stick to what you're talking about? One of the arguments for having state punishment, meaning punishment through a government, is precisely to avoid the kind of vengeance that you're describing. So if we imagined a society that didn't have a government that punished people, we might have victims or victims' families seeking vengeance. They might seek vengeance that's out of proportion. Acts of vengeance might lead to more acts of vengeance. And so one advantage of having state punishment, and we could add this even in the consequentialist column to another good thing about punishment, is that it can have a kind of safety release valve that we're going to focus our energies, focus our worries, focus our anger through a state-sponsored system of criminal justice. So if things are going right, I think there's a good argument that we are channeling some of those emotions into smarter, more directed ways. I think that's intriguing, actually, because it made me think about something very ancient in Judaism. In the Bible, it talks about the idea of somebody who is a blood avenger, literally somebody whose family member has been killed and the Torah, interestingly, sets up a what seems to be on the surface a bizarre thing, which are called refuge cities. But in a way, it really reminds me of what you're talking about, that somebody who has killed is allowed to escape to those places. And it's kind of like hands off. You can't touch them while they're in that city. Now, I don't know if this was entirely a theoretical construct and it never happened in history or it didn't, but it reminds me of this notion that you're alluding to here, which is that once you set off a cycle of violence, let's say we don't do it through the state, we allow you to avenge yourself. So then there's retribution the other way, like the, the perpetrator's family now wants to kill you. And so you're talking about a kind of a safety valve in culture to allow certain institutions to take care of punishment and not have it sort of played out on the individual level. That's right. And the fact that there is such a strong biblical component to retributivism and retribution, I think, reveals how deep those emotions can be. I mean, there's a reason why they've lasted thousands of years. And the question that we have to face today is, there's no doubt that we have those kinds of emotions, that they're deep inside us. The question is, are they the kinds of emotions we want to bring to the forefront, that we want to use in decision making? Or are they the sort of emotions that we want to say, while we have these emotions, we need to question them and understand if they're really guiding us in the right direction. So let's assume we do let the state do our kind of justice for us. I'm interested in the American example, Adam, that the United States has the highest percentage of people incarcerated in the world. In fact, it has the, the most actual numbers of people in jail, even though there are countries that have a greater population. So 
I'm wondering why you think that is. And here, I, I obviously, it's speculation and to serve the American psyche. But are Americans so unlawful? Or is there a flaw in the justice system? Like, what's the rationale for having so many people locked up or, in John Pfaff's phrase, locked in? There are two main components to your question. So one issue is how much crime is there in the United States? And then the other is how punitive are we? And both of those numbers are probably too high. In other words, we do have more crime than we want to have. It's certainly better than it was a few decades ago. I don't know exactly why the rates have gone up. There are lots of different, I'm sorry, why the rates had gone up and then why they went down. Some people speculate even something like having lead in gasoline led to cognitive damage and neurological damage that led to a spike in impulsive behavior and bad behavior and criminal behavior. And that subsequently reducing lead in gasoline may have reduced that effect. That's one hypothesis. And there are many hypotheses. So it's hard to say what's led to the rise in crime rates and the reduction and then why there's why they're high relative to other countries. So some people think that the availability of firearms has played a role in the United States, that sometimes conflicts that might not have escalated, escalated. And that leads to some more severe crimes in the United States. So one component is why do we have more crime than we should? And then another component is, why are we so punitive? One explanation has to do with the way we elect state judges. So most state judges are elected. And if you're a state judge running for election, sometimes popular kind of message is, I'm tough on crime. And a very unpopular kind of message is, judge so-and-so, you know, released a particular person who went on to commit some crime. Now, we all know that Everything has an error rate. So even if you're a near perfect judge, you're probably going to make some mistakes at some point in time. But it's a very vivid kind of message to say, here's this action that this one particular judge took and that particular action caused something bad to happen. We're much less likely to see the reverse situation. Look at all of these people that the judge kept in jail or in prison who would have gone on to lead productive lives. We don't hear that message partly because we probably never know it. We also live in a country where the punitive system tends to be removed from the public conscience. So prisons are pretty far away from population centers. They're out of sight and out of mind. So there's a lot of suffering that happens in prisons that we never see. So a lot of this tends to lead to a political advantage for judges to be harsh on crime, political advantage for legislators to say, look, I know you're worried when you go out at night and we're going to pass laws that make crime tougher or make it happen less. We're going to be tougher on crime. And so so there's certain political incentives to be harsh on crime, even though the punishment system is very costly and it, it prevents us from doing other things that might be better uses of our resources. It's, it's really interesting to me what you're saying. It, it almost speaks to a certain kind of psychology in different cultures. Like there's almost an insecurity about crime that's being played out in the American consciousness because it seems like you can go to jail in America for relatively minor offenses. And it's not the case in Western Europe, sometimes for even more severe offenses. And I, I know that the, the Yale professor of law, James Whitman, has talked about this, this difference between the European and American approaches. He's actually argued that American criminal law has this deep commitment at the one hand to this presumption of innocence, but at the very same time, almost paradoxically, the American criminal justice system by international standards is extraordinarily harsh. He thinks that Europeans are concerned with kind of standards of dignity and that American law may lack a quality of mercy. Do, do you think that that binary is valid? 
I'm not sure. It's certainly a good question. There is certainly a kind of frontier culture that we're familiar with in the United States that has a kind of punitive quality about it or retributive quality about it. Whenever I see movies, I'm always paying attention to when they have a kind of romanticized kind of notion of retribution and revenge versus when they have that kind of opposite view that I mentioned, the kind of consequentialist view, which is we're trying to promote the most healthy lives to keep people not victimized by crime, to keep them safe. And there is such a strong thumb on the scale for the kind of deontological retributivist view that we see in most movies that it's it's almost shocking that we think nothing when the hero takes some tremendous risk to try to save you know one in one life even if he's putting or she's putting thousands of people's lives in danger so there there is a kind of romantic quality to that that i think draws a lot of people in i think it's a kind of error i think it's a cognitive error that we focus on what's salient and we focus on we want to save you know a thousand and one lives no matter how much risk we're taking to the thousand rather than the other view which is yeah most of the time you want to save more lives even if you're taking a little bit of risk with a small number of people because in the long run that's better for society i'm thinking about i'm thinking about movies now and i'm thinking about one impulse the only counter impulse i see and it's maybe not even so opposite is the the hero who you know, doesn't want to get into a violent situation and tries to convince the bad guys, like, I, I don't want to fight, I don't want to fight, and then kind of whoops them in the end. You know, way back, now I'm going to date myself, way back in the day, there was a show, Kung Fu, with David Carradine, and David Carradine never wanted to fight. It was all, He was always being taunted by, you know, racists, and and so, of course, he would win every time. And there's something that we like about that, too. We like the impulse not to be violent on the one hand, but then to win <laughs> when you're challenged Absolutely. on the other hand. Absolutely. So I would say for decades of superhero and martial arts movies, if you look closely, the hero is almost always going to have a pretty good legal justification for the use of force. Maybe not always, but I think that's certainly the general rule. Becoming a little bit less common in just, you know, the last decade or so where we're seeing more heroes that are be less careful about following the law. But there's something that's especially emotionally satisfying about the use of force when it's justified. And I think that absolutely connects to the notion of punishment, that there's a kind of feeling like, yes, we're making someone suffer, but we're doing it for the cause of good. And that's a very seductive kind of emotion for a lot of people. What would you say to people who, you'll hear this, and you mentioned, I thought that was really, it made a lot of sense to me, the relationship of crime and justice to the electoral cycle and how judges need to show they're tough on crime. What do you think about a kind of popular assumption that gets phrased in different ways, but it's always around something like, well, we don't want people getting away with things, that somehow being lenient in punishment is thought of as as the criminal has somehow slipped away. Why do you think that it is that people think that way? Do you think it's culturally formed? Is there something in American consciousness that feels like people are getting away with things? I think it's a very natural emotion to feel like you go about your life following a lot of rules, and there really are a lot. I mean, there are just so many laws out there, civil laws, criminal laws, and then just rules of conduct and ethics. And so that that puts a kind of pressure on people. And when you see someone who's cheating, that hurts, right? It hurts someone who's kind of working that that very long day, at least nine to five, and then to see someone who's you know staying home most of the day and stealing for you know twenty minutes a day, 
that's tough. And I think, and I think that's right. We don't want people to cheat. We want people to follow the rules. The tricky question is going to be, how do we most intelligently invest our resources to make cheating something we people don't want to do or people that people will see it as something that's too risky, not worth their time? I think that's the way that people running the criminal justice system should think about things. How do you think, what do you think they could do to make people more disinclined to think that cheating prospers? One thing that's pretty well agreed about punishment is that when you increase amounts of punishment a little bit, it doesn't affect people's behavior very much. So if you're considering engaging in a particular crime and and you believe the punishment is 10 years in prison, upping it to 15 is probably not going to have a big effect on you. And that's because most people don't think they're going to get caught. We get more bang for our buck by catching people. And so to the extent that we're deciding where to invest our resources, investing resources in catching people, that is arresting them, tends to be a pretty good bet. We tend to get a good bang for our buck. Another thing that is a pretty good investment is bringing a pretty close connection between the commission of the bad behavior and the punishment for it. So when it takes a very long time to get punishment, it's not quite as salient to people. The idea that justice is swift is sometimes more effective. Do you think that there should be actually like a limit on prisoner terms that and fact that at some point all prisoners should be released? I believe that there's there's strong incentives to not put people in prison for exceptionally long terms, even if you're the sort of harshest retributivist out there. Now, that doesn't mean it's never appropriate. But I think we want to be very cautious about a punishment like that. A great deal of crime is committed by relatively young people, usually male in that kind of, I don't know, say 16 to 25, 30 range. And so we we want to focus our resources on the people that are most likely to commit crimes. Once someone's been in prison for 30 years or so, they're no longer young and aggressive in most cases. And so we're not getting as much bang for our buck by keeping someone in prison once they're old and frail. In fact, they become quite costly. So, yes, there probably are some people who should spend their entire lives in prison, either because they're dangerous or because we need to send a really strong deterrent message about the worst sorts of crimes out there. But for a vast number of people... We're not getting a lot of extra deterrence by punishing someone for 25 versus 20 years. The alternatives, I mean, to incarceration are really few, right? You can either try to give the person probation and try and see if they'll, you know, turn their life around and live the good life, let's say, or capital punishment. And I'm, I'm interested, you're probably familiar with you know, Manuel Kant's sort of thought experiment in terms of why we punish and in his work, The Metaphysics of Morals, where he seems to question deterrence as the real motive for punishment when he presents a hypothetical scene, which is what if we took a convicted murderer, we placed him on an island, and the island's been abandoned. There's there's nobody around that he could harm, and he has no chance of escape. So that would seem to take care of everything, right? The person is kind of locked up, and there's nobody for him to harm. Would we still feel the need to kill him? And Kant says yes, which, frankly, I found surprising. He says, even if a civil society were to be dissolved by the consent of all its members, i.e., so you have people inhabiting an island and they decide to separate and they decide to disperse throughout the world, the last murderer remaining in the prison there would first have to be executed so that each has done to him what his deeds deserve. And that phrase, what his deeds deserve, suggests that he's not thinking about deterrence. He's not certainly not thinking about rehabilitation. He's thinking about 
just desserts. He's thinking about what you might call justice or an eye for an eye. And I think he, you know, he obviously understood that such a proposition would test out our motives for contemplating execution. And if the purpose were to deter harmful acts, the execution would be redundant. So, and he seems to double down on this in his work, The Philosophy of Law, where he again supports capital punishment, at least for murderers, and links retribution to the principle of equality or fairness. He says, only the law of retribution, justalionis, can determine exactly the kind and degree of punishment. So the argument sounds simple, Adam, right? Merely a question of equal treatment. You killed someone. Why do you merit anything different in return? What would you say about this? Do you think Kant is right? Do you think he's wrong? Maybe we start with the question about the person on an island. So let's imagine we have a person on an island who's committed some terrible deed like a murder, but suppose they're on an island and we're never going to interact with them. So we take away the deterrence reason for harming them. We don't have to incapacitate them because we're going to assume that they're stuck on this island and they're all by the by themselves. It's true that a lot of people would have a really strong retributive impulse toward that person. So we could ask, you know, do people have the incentive, the the view that the person should be executed? But we don't even have to go that far. I mean, a lot of people would say, yeah, I think it's better if that person just has an awful hacking cough that they have to live with, that the world is actually a better place when that person is in pain than when that person leads an otherwise pleasant life on that on the island. And this is really a good test for the kind of retributivist versus consequentialist view that we talked about earlier. There's no question that most of us have that retributivist impulse, that we think the world is somehow better when that person's in pain. Is that the right view to have? I'm not sure. It's hard to say. We have that view, but I don't know if it's the right view. Part of the reason I'm unsure is that I question the whole notion of free will, that when we understand the universe as composed of particles that are following the laws of physics, it means that that murderer was going to murder before he or she was even born. That was sort of in their path. And certainly philosophers have found ways to try to identify some sort of free will that will lead us to justify these kind of retributivist impulses. But I have some skepticism about them. And I'm particularly skeptical if you want to hurt someone in the most severe way. So to say that that person should be executed, you want to be pretty confident that they actually have genuine free will. And the puzzle of free will, of course, has been with us for you know over a thousand years. So I'm not sure I have that confidence. I certainly have the retributivist impulse, but I am also skeptical of whether I should be encouraging it or not. Let's take the listener's point of view here and just think about the free will issue in relationship to punishment. I'm sure somebody listening to what you just said might think, yes, but doesn't that strip the perpetrator of responsibility? Don't we just say now, well, he wasn't kind of responsible for what he was doing. And obviously there is a category in law where we do talk about, you know, mental incapacity, but this would seem to be much a broader category where you're saying, how do we know that anybody is really acting on their own volition. But doesn't that, in a way, make a mockery then of trying to assess punishment for people? You're absolutely right that it's a it's a big issue, right? It's in fact, one of the deepest issues about criminal responsibility is how can we be morally responsible in a world that kind of follows the laws of physics that is either deterministic or is indeterministic, but in a way that we can't control it? What my own view about this is, when your when your spouse does something that annoys you, yeah, we're all humans and we're all going to react in a certain way to that. And this is true for lots of sorts of injuries in our daily lives. 
But when it comes to taking away someone's liberty for, you know, decades or even taking the person's life, you want to be pretty darn sure that we have free will. And when I think about the puzzle more and more, I think about how difficult it is to be confident that we have free will, even though we live our lives as though we do. Now, you could say, well, if we don't believe in free will, wow, that really changes the criminal justice system. But I think that's the wrong way to think about it. I think you want to think about it the opposite way. That is, this is a real problem. And there's a big responsibility when you're going to intentionally harm people. And you want to be confident that you've kind of checked all your philosophical bullet points. What would you do with that person then? Even if we accepted the view that they weren't really acting with full volition, what are we to do with such people? This is where I think the consequentialist has the stronger answer. So even if people are doing bad things without what we think of as the kind of free will that would qualify, uh, that would justify punishing them, we still have reasons to deter that person from doing it in the future, to deter other people from committing the same crime. We still have incentives to incapacitate them so they can't hurt us and to rehabilitate them so that they don't do it again. So I think the consequentialist has a good answer for why we might still engage in punishment or punishment-like behavior, even if people lack the kind of strong free will that we need for retribution. So would I be right in assuming that for you, in terms of capital punishment, you would see it as arrogant or not for human beings to determine who lives or who dies? I think there are lots of opportunities for humans to decide who lives and who dies, and they're perfectly appropriate. So for example, if someone's attacking you with a knife, you and then threatening your life, then you have a good self-defense justification for killing them. I don't think that that's arrogant. I think another time when we decide who lives and who dies are things like, do we require automobile manufacturers to use seatbelts and to use airbags? And I think those are also appropriate decisions. So I think that as a general matter, we do make life and death decisions and we don't have to think of it as arrogant. I think when it comes to criminal punishment, there might be some arrogance to it because you have to be extremely confident in what you're doing. So I think in some cases, there will be some arrogance to it. So I think there are problems with capital punishment, but the fact that it involves choosing who lives and who dies isn't the most salient for me. What do you see as the biggest problem? Like, Do you think there is a moral case for executing someone who carries out certain crimes, or do you think that's never on the table? Capital punishment is a tricky issue. What I think is most salient are the problems with it. So one problem with it is we don't have a lot of confidence that it's actually deterring crime. If a person is thinking of murdering someone, the fact that they live in a state that's going to punish it with, say, life in prison versus capital punishment isn't adding a lot of deterrent value. I mean, some people think that there's some deterrent value, but there's a lot of debate among statisticians about how much deterrence we're actually going to get. In terms of cost, there doesn't seem to be cost savings. There seems to be uh, additional costs that come from all of the additional procedure that goes into finding someone guilty of a capital crime. And so we're talking about not getting a lot of deterrence or being uncertain about how much deterrence we're getting. We're talking about a very expensive process. And it's a punishment that's not being used very often in the United States anymore. So I think that's a good thing. And I think that defense of capital punishment is going to be on the wrong side of history that, you know, in 50 years from now, I'd be very surprised if it still exists in the United States. So let me let me go back with you to the kind of moral quid pro quo that the philosopher Immanuel Kant seems to be inferring. The, 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 let's say we take some of the factors you've delineated here very sensibly off the table for a moment. It's not about cost. It's not about deterrence. It's just about this feeling that why should you 
be enjoying life when some you took it away from somebody else. The the sort of almost an eye for an eye sort of consciousness. What do you think of that morally, philosophically, this feeling in people that I, I don't care about what it costs or if it deters other people. I just feel like you took away my loved one. Why should you live? What, what do you think of that impulse? That's a very natural human psychological impulse. The question is, what do we make of that impulse? So we have all sorts of impulses. People have, have lustful impulses. People have urges to engage in crimes themselves, and they restrain those impulses. So I think that the fact that we have an impulse might be informative in some way, but it's certainly not the final question on the matter. And so I think that we need to try to channel some of those emotions into productive ways. You mentioned the principle of jus talionis or lex talionis, the idea of an eye for an eye. I don't think that's a smart way to run a criminal justice system. So, for example, if a person steals your car, we're not going to steal back their car, right? If a person commits a rape, we're not going to rape that person. So there are some ways in which this idea of an eye for an eye is just entirely impractical. There are some ways in which it just seems to get the wrong moral result. So if a person takes one person's eye of a person who only had one eye, then taking that person's eye isn't really going to capture what we think of as a kind of fair punishment. So I think there are all sorts of problems with the idea of an eye for an eye. Another problem is it will sometimes under deter people. So, for example, someone really likes punching people and he goes around punching people and we're not going to catch him every time that he punches someone. We're going to miss a lot of those. Maybe we catch one in every five times that he punches. So if we were to deliver an eye for an eye, if we were to punch him back, we're really under deterring him. I mean, he might go about his business thinking, I just love people punish, punching people so much. I don't mind getting punched once in a while. Uh, so that's not very good from a consequentialist perspective to kind of under deter people. So I think that Lex Talionis doesn't work. It has been replaced, I think, in kind of modern punishment theory with the idea of proportional punishment. So it doesn't necessarily mean an eye for an eye, but people think for a given level, level of culpability or a given level of blameworthiness, there's a corresponding level of punishment that's appropriate. And some people hold that view. I'm skeptical. Yeah, I am too. You know, when I think about proportionality, and I was thinking this before as you were talking, when we punish people, I, I've always been mystified at how we came up with, well, you get this amount of time in jail for this offense. I'm thinking specifically about drug offenses and drug offenses as they're related to minorities in the United States. Do, do you believe there's something kind of askew with the way we lock up all of these young men usually for, you know, marijuana or drugs or whatever it else it is, and see that as somehow proportional? There's certainly a history of racially biased law enforcement. So that's undoubtedly a problem. There's certainly a focus on men relative to women and a view that men are more dangerous than women. There's some justification for having that view. But if the question is, do I think that drugs are punished and, and enforced in a way that's fair and equal across society? I think the answer is no, they're not. So those are, are certainly real problems for sure. In terms of proportionality, I entirely agree that no one has come up with a good theory of how to convert an amount of culpability or an amount of blameworthiness into an amount of punishment. And it's to me, it's almost amazing that so many punishment theorists and people who focus on criminal justice speak of proportional punishment. It's kind of like a shorthand for something that says, and I have no idea what that really means. <laughs> it, it, when they speak of proportionality, isn't it also a Rorschach of what a culture values or uh, despises? So we're really talking about 
I think you should get punished for this because I think the thing you did is reprehensible, which is really also just a way of saying, I don't like this. And it, it, could it be that simple that we're just putting people in jail for stuff we, quote, don't like? As a descriptive matter, in terms of what we actually do, I think there's no question that that's the case. That is, especially if we think about, I think, the cri- criminalization of same-sex behavior. And you try to ask people, well, what what is wrong with it? And they kind of come up with all sorts of rationalizations that generally aren't that convincing. So I think there's there's certainly a history of punishing behavior that is simply things that people find morally offensive, but might not be able to defend on any solid philosophical grounds. You talked earlier about rehabilitation, about the notion of somebody coming to terms with what they did, becoming better. And I think about this every year around Yom Kippur, which is the most sacred moment of the Jewish calendar, literally the Day of Atonement. I'm interested in how you think about atonement, redemption, rehabilitation in the context of punishment. I'm, I'm not asking for a, like a religious answer, quote unquote. What do you think constitutes for somebody who's done wrong, a real atonement? And do you think punishment is actually an aid to atonement or actually a hindrance in your eyes? That's a great question. I don't know that I know the answer to this. I mean, certainly atoning for one's crime would seem to require an acknowledgement that one committed the crime or whatever the bad behavior was, a recognition that it's harmful, a recognition of why it's harmful. But that raises all sorts of interesting questions. So, for example, suppose someone atones for bad behavior for a reason that's different than what the victim perceives as the wrong behavior. Do we want to count that as genuine atonement? So I think There's a great question about what exactly is atonement from a philosophical perspective. I think there's another perspective, which is sort of from the criminal justice system, what counts as atonement. And if you look at it from a kind of very consequentialist perspective, you can look at it as a psychological feature of human beings. What is it for them to engage in this process that's going to make them less likely to engage in the bad behavior in the future? And that's a question that's more open to kind of scientific investigation. We can try interventions and see which ones tend to succeed. But that may still be different than the kind of deep philosophical question that you were asking about. You know, finally, I'm wondering if you could comment on on punitiveness in the, in the digital era. It, it does seem that in the age of the internet, I'm not really well qualified to speak about this because I abhor social media. I'm on it I'll virtually never, but I'm aware of it as a huge presence in modern Western life. And it does seem that in the age of the internet that we've seen here a lot more moral outrage, that people almost seem bent on ruining the lives of other people through social media and other organs. And I used to think of this almost kind of like metaphorically until I read an article, I think it was like two years ago in the New Yorker about people's lives actually being ruined, people committing suicide for being falsely accused of heinous things and and so on. I wonder how do you think, Adam, how technology affects the ethics of punishment? There's a lot of behavior on the Internet that is not to be praised. And I don't know that it necessarily qualifies as punishment. So there are times that someone will say something and someone will feel an obligation to kind of correct them or they feel harmed in some way by what they said. They feel like the person was promoting some awful idea that's going to affect them or their families. And I'm not sure it's it's exactly qualifies as punishment, but there's a kind of anger that it engenders that people feel a need to respond to. I think part of why we see negative behavior on the Internet is that a lot of people who are kind of in the middle of the spectrum say, I'm just going to I read something that upset me. I'm going to continue on with my life. You know, 
that was three seconds that wasn't that important to me. The people that tend to respond are those that have the strongest reactions. And so their responses will tend to be the least civil and the strongest. And so that may be part of what we're seeing on the Internet. And people can find all different sorts of homes on the Internet, you know, in terms of who the audience is, to the extent to which it's just open to the public general, generally, to the extent that it's a friend of yours. So I think that ideally we want, you know, a thousand flowers to bloom and, and people to find the right homes for themselves on the Internet. But that that model that I'm describing maybe doesn't always work. And there are a bunch of reasons why, you know, certain networks become popular and it's not like people have a free choice about where to go. So that's on the one hand, the issue of how technology and the media and the Internet can lead to kind of negative or even retributivist kinds of impulses in people. But there's a separate question of how technology can be useful in punishment that I think could be much more positive. So there are people working on all sorts of things like drugs to treat addiction. And that's wonderful, right? I mean, if we can stop people from being addicted, we can reduce a lot of crimes that are associated with addiction and just make people's lives better in general. Drugs and other technologies to help people control aggressive impulses. That's wonderful as well. Incarceration is a very old technology. It's expensive. It's extremely unpleasant. And I think to the extent that we can find ways of deterring bad behavior, and even incapacitating people in ways that doesn't ruin their lives so much and doesn't ruin the lives of their loved ones. These are wonderful things. And I'm I'm optimistic that t- technology is going to improve on the way that we're currently treating people who commit crimes. Do you think that we'll ever see a real equivalence between punishment and justice? Or is that always going to be somehow elusive? The question is, what do we mean by justice? And so part of that is, if we view justice in a kind of retributivist way, then that leads to one set of punishments. If we view justice in a consequentialist way, that leads to a different sort of punishment. And again, most people have aspects of both. They view justice as having different components to it. And so we have to settle as a society on particular kinds of punishments through a system of voting and representatives and that sort of thing. I'm optimistic that things will get better over time. But like they say about the the long arc of justice, it bends in the right way, but it takes a long time. It's a long arc. We live in scary times. Violence seems endemic wherever you turn, whether it is Russian war crimes in the Ukraine or mass shootings in American schools and supermarkets. The resultant furor and outcry for justice does not necessarily lead to the kind of results we need to feel satisfied, perhaps because no amount of punishment or retribution can really undo the enormous harms that have taken place. We punish because we feel that's what the perpetrator deserves, or because we want to deter others from trying the same thing, or perhaps to buy time and rehabilitate the offender. And each of these motivations has its supporters and its detractors. But human beings taking responsibility for what they have done and accepting the consequences, often seems to be in short supply. Note the reaction of the Torah's first murderer, the biblical character Cain, who when asked by God what has happened to Abel, responds, Am I my brother's keeper? In many ways, the answer to Cain's rhetorical question is yes, but perhaps with a kind of asterisk. As Western societies struggle to keep our citizens, and especially our children, safe, it also becomes increasingly clear that accountability begins with oneself, and radiates outwards. As Rabbi Abram Joshua Heschel wrote to explain his involvement with the 1960s peace movement, there is immense silent agony in the world, 
and the task of man is to be a voice for the plundered poor, to prevent the desecration of the soul and the violation of our dream of honesty. Morally speaking, there is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings. That indifference to evil is worse than evil itself, and that in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. I'm Elia Malaman, and this has been What Would You Do? To find previous episodes of this series, as well as other podcasts, just subscribe for free to Living Jewishly at www.livingjewishly.org, where you can find details of our amazing course on Judaism in the School of Living Jewishly, and check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Stay safe, and take good care of yourselves. Thanks for listening to the Living Jewishly podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps more people like you find our show so that we can continue to grow the Living Jewishly community together. You can find us at livingjewishly.org and on YouTube and Instagram. Living Jewishly is living well with everyone.